0: daughter to live. Right. So in preparation for this, I, I went around asking a lot of people this question, many of my friends, some of you, and I got a lot of answers. All right. So very commonly, people will say, well, what, I want my, uh, what kind of life I want my kids to live? Well, the standard stuff, right? I want them to go to college, to graduate, get a job, start making some money, get some money in the bank, get married, uh, buy a house, uh, raise some kids, and you know, start the cycle over again. That's a very standard thing. Um, other people will admit to me that uh, you know, they, they want their kids to be successful. So you know, not just any college, but they want to go, their kids to go to as elite a college as possible. Um, not just any job, but you know, a prestigious job. And not just some money, but they want their kids, if possible, to make a lot of money. And, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, There are some people who who get away from all this. They just say, you know, I just want my kids to be happy. So whatever they want to do, it's fine by me. I just want them to be happy. And then there are some people who say, I want my kids to be good. I want them to be virtuous people, people of strong moral character. That's what is most important. That's what the kind of life that I want my kids to live. So, so th- anyway, this question, this question of what kind of life should I want to live, this is a philosophical question, and many philosophers have put forward their answers to this question. And what's interesting is that in Athens, at the time, Athens was the center of the Western philosophical world. All of the world's best philosophers were in Athens, and then Paul comes to Athens, and he converses with them, and he preaches the gospel to them. And what he ends up saying and how he ends up confronting them is absolutely fascinating, and I think we can learn a great deal about um, not only about uh, the gospel itself, about the nature of the gospel itself. We can learn a lot about how to do evangelism from what Paul does in Acts 17. And so I want to divide our time today into three parts. Um, The first part is we want to look at the Athenian philosophy. So in in the passage, it, it states explicitly that there were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So I want to spend some time looking carefully at Epicureanism and Stoicism so we understand what sort of perspectives were present in Athens at the time when Paul comes in. The second, we're going to look at how Paul preaches the gospel to these people. How does, God, how does Paul evangelize the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers? And then finally, we'll look at uh, what we learn about the gospel itself from what Paul says. Okay, so the first three parts, uh, we'll look at Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. We'll see what Paul says, and we'll see what we can learn about the gospel. All right, so uh, let's start with Epicureans. All right, so uh, the Epicureans are famous for being... Hedonists. Okay, so what a hedonist is is somebody who says that the point of life is to seek pleasure. Right. Pleasure is the ultimate good. We should spend our lives seeking pleasure. Now, when you first hear about this, the common um, stereotypical perspective of what what do you think that means is well, it means that probably what the Epicurean is telling me to do is telling me to you know engage on some unbridled, unrestrained decadent, self-indulgent lifestyle, right? Some sort of uh, partying, wild parties all the time, drinking all the time, that sort of thing. And that's often the stereotype of what an Epicurean is all about. Um, But actually, Epicurus himself uh, rejected that perspective. He said, that can't work. That can't be the correct answer because your goal isn't just to get as much pleasure as you can. Your goal is also to try to avoid suffering. And he observed that when you party really wildly and do that non-stop, you're going to suffer for it afterwards. You know? And he said, you know, I don't think he doesn't, from what he sees of life, he doesn't think the hangover and all the uh, negative consequences of wild parties is really worth the temporary pleasures that you get from the wild party. And he went further from this. He basically said, well, pleasure is basically uh, satisfaction of our desires. But then he looked at our desires, and he said, you know, there are some desires which are natural and necessary desires, desires for food, for drink, for shelter, clothing, uh, friendship. These are necessary desires, natural and necessary. But then there were other desires that we had that he ended up calling vain and empty desires. This includes the desire for money, desire for power, desire for fame, desire for respect of other people. Desire for accolades, the ambition to outdo your neighbor, to to accomplish more in your life than your brother or whatever. You know, so so he basically said, you know, these vain desires, you're not going to get maximization of pleasure by trying to satisfy these vain desires. And he gave a couple of reasons why. But we can actually modern psychology has helped us understand why. There's there are two basically two reasons he gives. The first is something called the hedonic treadmill. I I don't know if anyone here has heard of the hedonic treadmill. Uh, This is a modern psychological discovery that Epicurus already knew about uh, hundreds of years before Christ. Um, So basically, the hedonic treadmill is an observation. They look at lottery winners and other people who gain a lot of money. They say that basically what happens is when you increase your lifestyle, like you get more money or more power or more whatever of these vain and empty uh, uh, desires, you satisfy more of them, what ends up happening is you just get used to the higher level of luxury, you begin to expect the higher level of luxury that you are now surrounded by. And then you become, and then your happiness just gets reset to a higher set point. So basically, you acclimate to the increased abundance and then you're no happier than you were before. They, they look at this by looking at lottery winners. They, they take a lottery winner and then follow them six months after they've won the lottery, and they find their happiness hasn't actually increased. It increased temporarily, but then they get used to the increased level of luxury, and then they see other people who have even more than them, and they get unhappy again, right? And so you lose, this is the hedonic treadmill. So it's, it's an empty, it's a treadmill. You're never gonna get anywhere by trying to pursue money, power, success, those kinds of things. Now, the other is that um, when you get money or power success, you you acquire new worries. You start worrying about, well, how am I going to hold on to my money? How am I going to hold on to my position of power? Um, What if the stock market crashes? So you you basically inherit a huge amount of new worries that you didn't have before you had the money. And so it all balances out. You don't get any additional pleasure from it at all. And you actually get a lot more headache from it than you get pleasure. And so Epicurus says, if you're trying to maximize pleasure, don't go for these things. So what kind of life did Epicurus recommend? Well, he actually recommended living calm, peaceful, humble lives. You know, the only real desires that we should be fulfilling are our natural necessary desires for simple food, for drink, for a shelter, clothing, a few friends, and that's it. Don't try to get in your head any of these crazy ambitions about making huge amounts of money or getting huge amounts of power because when you enter into that rat race, you're going to bring suffering on yourself. And the pleasure that you're going to get isn't going to be able to compensate for it. So maximize pleasure in your life by living a simple life. That was Epicurean philosophy. Now, I tried really hard to come up with, uh, so I like, I like movies, I like to use illustrations from movies, to illustrate what kind of a person, like some movie character that illustrates the true Epicurean lifestyle, I couldn't come up with one. And it actually makes a lot of sense why they wouldn't, the Epicurean, the true Epicurean, lives a really simple, humble life. So no one's going to be interested in his life. No one's going to be interested in looking at a movie about someone who has no ambitions, who just meets his basic needs, who has no ambition to, to, uh, for any money or power or success or anything like that. It's just not interesting. And since a true Epicurean wouldn't um, seek fame, uh, however many true epicureans are living among us in this world we wouldn't know about them because they're going to keep their head down they're not going to try to seek anyone to know who they are we wouldn't hear about them Uh, the closest i could come to was this movie a terrible movie by the way don't don't watch it Uh, called the equalizer i don't know if anyone of you subjected yourself to this movie it's a denzel washington movie Um, the main character in the equalizer was a guy named robert mccall and Robert McCall is a guy who has basically all of the skills necessary to be James Bond. He, which is, I think, if you were to ask me, uh, like a stereotypical hedonistic lifestyle, James Bond probably has the, uh, the most pleasure-filled lifestyle of all, an exciting lifestyle of all. So he has all the skills and training necessary to be James Bond. But he just says, I don't want to have anything to do with that. He lives a very simple, quiet life working at a Home Depot, in Boston, uh, doing nothing. He has a few friends, doesn't try to do anything, doesn't even try to improve uh, his rank in the store. Um, and then the movie, and that's, that's the lifestyle of a uh, true epicurean, somebody who just meets his daily needs by, uh, by working a very unassuming humble job. Right. Uh, of course, the movie doesn't end there, because if that was the whole movie, no, nobody would go see it. Uh, he ends up befriending this woman who uh, is being trafficked by the Russian mafia, and he makes a decision to Declare war on the Russian mafia to free her, and so, uh, so there's this whole movie of him doing his Jan- he gets to do his James Bond stuff basically, right? And um, and Epicurus would have disapproved of everything that happens in the movie. I mean, he says you should have friends, but you should not have friends who you need to declare war on the Russian mafia to help. I mean, that's just not worth the pain and suffering, the risk of pain and suffering out there. Just drop her as a friend and just move on. There are other people, other people in the world that don't need you to take on the Russian mafia. Uh, Epicurus also said you shouldn't get married because marriage overall creates more heartache than, than pleasure. Um, so he has this whole philosophy. All right, so that's Epicurus. Um, Let's turn to Stoics, alright, so the the Stoics, alright, the Stoics were the main opponents of the Epicureans, by the way. Uh, The Stoics had a big problem with Epicurus's focus on pleasure and on the self. The Stoics first said, look, you can't be just entirely focused so much on your own pleasure, on, on yourself, this whole selfish way of looking. The Stoics valued community. They valued our relationships with our families. They valued our relationships with the community at large. They basically said that we shouldn't focus entirely on just pleasure and suffering. We, he, they, the Stoics said that happiness requires you to be a person of good character. So they emphasized moral virtue. You can't be happy unless you are a good person, according to the Stoics. And so the Stoics valued community. You can't just be focused on yourself. And they valued character. You can't just be focused on pleasure. You have to be focused on being a good person. Now, immediately, the Stoics ran into a problem. The Epicureans would always throw this problem in their face. It says this is a recipe for suffering. If you're focused on character and you're focused on community, you're going to suffer. Why? Well, first of all, a community is made up of lots of people. You don't have control over what these other people do. Other people can betray you. They can hurt you. They can do things that disappoint you, right? So once you start caring about them, you're setting yourself up. You're making yourself vulnerable to suffering. And by and large, they will make you suffer. Also, you don't have the power to protect your community from disease, from foreign invasion, from all sorts of other failures or accidents or setbacks. And so again, you're making yourself vulnerable to suffering. Further, it's great to be morally virtuous and all, but this isn't a just world. So, oftentimes, the people who are of the greatest moral character are not the most successful. Oftentimes, people suffer because they do the right thing. And so, again, when you focus your attention on being morally virtuous, you're setting yourself up for suffering. What are you going to do about that, Mr. Stoic? Now, the Stoic has an answer to this problem, and the Stoic answer to this problem is probably the most um, famous component of what it means to be a Stoic. And what the Stoic says is that, the uh, Stoic says you, you, indifference is the solution to this problem. Indifference. That's kind of a Stoic indifference. The Stoic basically says, okay, Epicurean, you're right. When I care about my community, I'm setting myself up to be disappointed. I'm setting myself up to possibly be hurt. Um, when I care about moral virtue, I'm setting myself up for... For, uh, for pain and suffering, for punishment sometimes, right? And I don't have control over the, what the people in my community do. I do not have control over potential disasters. I do not have control over disease. But I do, there is something that I do have control over. I have control over myself. I have control over how I respond to problems when they occur, how I respond to people when they disappoint me. I have control over my own attitude towards life. I have control over my own choices and my own character. And even if I suffer misfortune, says the Stoic, even if I suffer these setbacks, I can still have control over my internal state. And because I can keep my internal state perfectly virtuous, I can remain happy no matter what happens to me. That's what the Stoic says. Now, um, there actually is a wonderful depiction of uh, the ideal stoic, I would say, in film. And what I have in mind is uh, a film uh, uh, named uh, Shawshank Redemption. So this is actually a a movie that I do recommend. Uh, It is rated R, so if you're underage, you have to uh, get the permission of your parents. But it's it's something that uh, even someone under 18 could safely watch without without difficulty. Um, a, the main character in the Shawshank Redemption is this guy named Andy Dufresne. And the Shawshank Redemption starts out with Andy's wife uh, cheating on him. So again, right away, you have an example of your community disappointing you, betraying you. So Andy's wife is uh, cheating on him, and then Andy's wife and her lover are murdered. And it turns out that all the evidence seems to point towards Andy as the murderer, but he actually didn't do anything. So he actually gets convicted of this double murder and gets sent to prison. Um, so again, this is somebody who suffered a great deal of injustice, suffered a great deal of disappointment, and the w- but when he shows up in prison, there's something different about him, about how he handles what happens to him. And his his friend, Red, puts it very eloquently, and he says this. I'm quoting from the the movie. He says this about Andy Dufresne. He had a quiet way about him, a walk and a talk that just wasn't normal around here. He strolled like a man in a park without a care or a worry in the world, like he had on an invisible coat that would shield him from this place. That's a stoic. A stoic, somebody who suffers such great loss, gets put into such a terrible place, and yet he has on this invisible coat, something that allows him to be shielded from the place around him. Right? And while Andy's in prison, he does what he can to try to improve the lot of the prisoners. He he uh, sets up a library and starts educating the prisoners and teaching them skills for them to make them ready to return back to the world. Right? He, um, uh, he basically uh, when he earns a favor with the guards, he basically gets them to uh, give beers to his friends, the other inmates, so then they can have a drink, right? so they can have some pleasure. And, uh, and then he, um, at one time, he uses the prison's PA system to play music for the entire prison, just so that the people would, um, could feel that they're, they're real people again. And he does this even knowing that he's about to get severely punished for doing this. This is something an Epicurean would never do, right? Epicurean is trying to maximize pleasure for himself. He knows that if he plays a little bit of music, he's going to get uh, a month in solitary confinement. It, numbers don't add up. He wouldn't do it, right? So, uh, so he gets solitary confinement for this. And when, people, uh, when he gets out and people ask him, how did you get through that? Well, here's what he says. He says, there's something inside that they can't get to that they can't touch, that's yours, right? That's the Stoic perspective, something inside that you, no matter what happens outside, they can't touch, that's yours. It is the core Stoic teaching. No matter what happens to you externally, you're always in control of your inner being, and you're always in control of your own virtue, your own attitude towards life, your own choices. That can never be taken away from you, and you always have your happiness and your dignity. That's the Stoic perspective. So we have a stoic, Andy Dufresne, who um, values community, cares about others, uh, who has this thing inside them, his own control over his inner character that gets him through life. And then we have... um, the epicurean someone like robert mccall maybe who cares only about pleasure but has chosen to live a very simple unassuming unambitious life that meets his, only his basic needs he keeps a lid on all these vain and empty desires he has nothing to do with this uh, rat race of trying to get ahead because he knows that that's just going to lead to, to suffering now the question is how do you evangelize these people now, this is not a case in which you have people who are stuck in some sort of depravity or s- people who are, are, are clearly self-destroying themselves through their sinfulness and thus need Jesus to rescue them in this you know, monumental way, right? Out of this life of, of filth and depravity, right? They actually have thought about their philosophies of life. They have answers for, you know, just about any challenge that they may encounter from a non-Epicurean or a non-Stoic perspective. Uh, how would you bring people like this to recognize their need for Christ? Right. Um, and, and that's what's so interesting about this passage, Acts 17, because we have an example, a- uh, Paul actually does it. So what is Paul's strategy for evangelizing Epicureans and Stoics? Well. The first thing we notice, and this is an extremely important point, is it says that Paul doesn't start his evangelism by marching straight to the Areopagus and delivering a sermon. He starts out in the marketplace. He starts out conversing with the Epicureans and the Stoics. And it's very important, this word conversing. It implies it requires a two-way communication. Paul isn't there just preaching the gospel out one way from his mind to the people saying that you have to repent and change your ways. He's listening to the Epicureans and Stoics, right? He's conversing with them, so he's getting to understand them, right? And this point is is crucial. Evangelism is best understood as a conversation, right? Before Paul knows how to try to persuade the Epicureans and the Stoics of the truth of the gospel, he's got to listen to the Epicureans and the Stoics. He has to work to understand their perspective, and their argument, and he had to sure, make sure that he correctly understood how the Epicureans and the Stoics viewed things. Right? It's only after all that, that Paul is ready to preach to them. Um, now the sad truth for modern day evangelism, in many cases, is that we treat sharing the gospel with an attitude of superiority. Right? As if the Christian has all the answers, the non-Christian is completely lost and knows nothing about how to live their life. And our job is to pound the truth into their heads, to get it through their thick skulls what the you know, right way of living is because they obviously don't know what they're doing. Right? Um, but the truth is that evangelism shouldn't be done that way. That's not how Paul does it. Evangelism should be approached with a spirit of humility. Uh, we have to understand that no matter how long we've been in the faith, there might be blind spots in our own understanding of the gospel things that non-Christians may actually be able to teach us, uh, be able to help us understand our gospel, understand what we believe better, as part of this conversation, The Epicureans and the Stoic perspectives, they're not entirely off base, right? Right? So I think the Christians can learn a lot from the Epicureans, right? This this observation, right, that, that selfish ambition and trying for what they call the vain and empty uh, desires, like money, power, uh, the desire to competitively outdo one another, Uh, these are vain and empty desires. You can just look at the book of uh, Ecclesiastes. You can find that the Christian also agrees with the Epicurean. Sometimes we need to be reminded, as Christians, we need to be reminded that these things are vain and empty. Similarly, I think Christians can learn a lot from the Stoic. Um, Christians aren't immune from setbacks and disappointments in their life and betrayals from people that they love. And when we are in the, caught in the middle of a difficulty, it sometimes is necessary for us to be reminded that we need to, that we too have something internal that we can hold on to no matter what happens outside of us. And this ability of the Stoic to find some inner strength, um, the Christian can interpret that for the Christian life as trying to find peace in Christ. So anyway, there's a lot that we can learn from the Epicurean Stoic, and and that's part of what evangelism is. Part of evangelism is allowing others to interrogate our beliefs so that we can understand them better, so that we can communicate them better to one who doesn't believe. All right, so that's the first step to Paul's evangelistic strategy. Listen carefully to the non-believers. Now, for the second step, we're going to have to look at what Paul says. And he starts his sermon... By going straight to the point, right off the bat, he starts out confronting something the Athenians were doing wrong. He confronts their central sin, which is idolatry. Athens was full of idols, so much so that we're told in verse 16 that this distresses Paul. Now, um, the crucial thing to understand here is that the sin of idolatry, which Paul addresses here, is something which the Athenians themselves Should have been able to recognize as wrong. Uh, To see why, you need to understand something about pagan worship. And uh, Paul, when he says in verse 22 that the Athenians were very religious, he actually uses a very special Greek word to describe the religiousness of the Athenians. He uses the word Dice Daimonestris, which actually means fearing the gods. Fearing the gods, all right? Uh, so, what is this? Uh, Athenian, so he's basically saying, your Athenian idolatry is driven by fear, and he's saying there's something wrong with it. Well, what is this fear-driven idolatry? Well, um, alright, so, so what is Athenian? Uh, alright, so, so let's say you're an Athenian, and you've just done something wrong, and you're afraid the gods would punish you. So, what do you do? Well, you go to the temple, you offer sacrifices, you offer your prayers, And now you've engaged, and then you can begin to engage in a little bit of quid pro quo with the gods. You can say, okay, I did this bad thing, but I just went to the temple and did this good thing, so that should cancel out the bad thing that I just did. Or let's say you're a business person and you're about to enter into a new business venture, and you're afraid, so fear-driven, you're afraid that maybe something will go bad and you will lose your investment. So what do you do? You go to the temple, you offer prayers, you offer sacrifices, and then now you're in a position to, to engage in a little bit of quid pro quo with the gods again. You basically say, look, gods, I did this thing at the temple. You owe me something, so help my business venture succeed. That's Athenian idolatry, right? The idea is that you go to the temples, you do a favor for the gods, the gods owe you something, and so then you can ask them to do something for you. right? Now... Now, this is extremely important. The Epicureans and the Stoics, they both argued that this kind of quid pro quo relationship with the gods is no good. The Epicureans believed that the gods already, because they were gods, they already had lives of perfect pleasure. And they, too, only care about their own pleasure, that humans can do nothing at all to improve the pleasure of the gods. There's nothing we can do to make the gods' lives already more pleasurable than they already are. And so none of our sacrifices, none of our prayers, none of our activity in the temples, none of that can have any influence on the gods whatsoever. That is the core Epicurean teaching. Similarly, the Stoics, well, differently, but the Stoics also had the same conclusion, though, for a different reason. Stoics believed in complete predestination, they believed that the gods had already determined every single event that was going to happen in the history of the world, in the history of your life. Nothing that you say or do or whatever can change what the gods have already decided is going to happen in your life. And your job as a Stoic is to be indifferent to whatever happens, right? That's Stoic indifference. That's the whole point of Stoicism. So a good Stoic would never go to a temple to offer any prayers or sacrifices or anything to the gods because he has a good Stoic is supposed to be indifferent to his surroundings. He's supposed to accept what's going, what the gods have deemed what happened. Right? So, so there's a contradiction, right? Um, the Stoics and Epicureans actually would have agreed with what Paul says in verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. The Stoics and Epicureans would have agreed with that. But even though the Stoics and the Epicureans taught that idolatry was pointless and unreasonable, the city was still filled with temples and idols. And so Paul sees this contradiction, and he starts out his sermon by pointing out their idolatry. You see, persuasive evangelism has to meet the non believer where he is. Paul starts out by listening to the Athenians so he knows what they believe about God, that God isn't served by idolatry. But then you have all these idols. So he has a point of commonality to step in and point out an inconsistency within their own philosophy, within their own lives, something that they themselves could have recognized is wrong with what they were doing. That's the entry point that Paul uses for his evangelism to the Athenians. You see how that works? The Athenians made idols. The Athenians' own philosophy taught that those idols were pointless and unreasonable. Paul uses that as his entry point because Christians also teach that idolatry was unreasonable. So it's not enough to just listen to what nonbelievers say. It's also important to observe their lives, to see if they're living lives that are consistent with the philosophies that they themselves are preaching. Now, one of the things that I've learned from all these years of learning philosophy is that there is no perfect philosophical system. No matter what your philosophy of life is, no matter what your perspective, what philosopher you follow, or whatever philosophy you've come up with for yourself, there's always going to be inadequacies. There always will be inconsistencies between what you say in your philosophy and how you live your life. And the entry point for evangelism with a Christian is to look at those inconsistencies and to begin the process of evangelism by addressing those. Now, it takes a lot of patience to listen to someone and understand their philosophy. And it takes a lot of courage to point out inconsistencies between a person's life and what a person's philosophy says. Uh, But even that isn't enough to spread the gospel. In order for evangelism to be effective, you've got to give the non-believers the Christian alternative. You've got to tell them what the Christian message is. And that's what Paul does in verses 26 through 27. He says this, From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So this is where Paul presents the Christian alternative to Epicureanism and Stoicism. He does this extremely concisely, so it's very easy to to overlook it. So what what is he saying, right? But it's actually completely clear what he says. He says, Paul says, God created us, that God carefully arranges when and where we live so that that we would seek him. So So Paul is teaching that God has an intentional purpose for every one of us. And God has arranged the time and the place in which we would live so that we would seek God. So do you see the contrast? The Epicurean says uh, to, to the question that we started out with, remember the question, what sort of life should I want to live? The Epicurean answers that question by saying, you should seek pleasure. The Stoic answers that question by saying, you should seek virtue. Paul answers that question by saying, "You should seek God." Right? That's the Christian alternative to Epicureanism and Stoicism. Right? I really like this way of drawing the contrast between the Christian life and the non-Christian life, right? because um, it's just so simple to say answer to the question, "What sort of life should you want for yourself?" A life seeking God, and it's also what Jesus said. Right? Remember what Jesus said. Uh, he says, "Seek." First the kingdom of God and your right and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See. The Christian life isn't a life spent seeking pleasure, right? First and foremost. The Christian life isn't even a life spent seeking moral virtue. Right? These works of moral virtue. The Christian life is a life seeking first the kingdom of God, seeking God. Now, Jesus goes further than Paul. Jesus actually says, and all these things will be added unto you. If you remember the context within which Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, he's actually talking about the things the Epicureans and the Stoics are talking about. He's thinking, he's talking about, well, what about food? What about shelter? What about the clothes that I will wear? He's basically saying that if you seek God first, God will make sure that you have all the things you need. He'll make sure that you have all the pleasure that you need and you'll have all, as much freedom from suffering as is possible. Right? He's saying that if you seek God first, God will give you his righteousness, which you want, the moral virtue that the Stoics were after. God's saying you seek God first, he'll give, him, he'll give you his righteousness. Right? So there we have it. That's Paul's evangelistic strategy. Um, first, converse with the Epicureans and Stoics, having the patience to listen carefully to their perspective. Second, point out a contradiction between their professed for philosophy and the way they are living their lives. And third, offer the Christian alternative. The kind of life you want to live for yourself is not one spent seeking pleasure, is not one seeking moral virtue, it's a life seeking God. Now, um, in the remaining time that we have together, I, I want to talk a little bit more about this seeking God stuff. All right? so, um, because it just, it just encompasses so much of what the Christian life is all about. All right? um, and also, Paul has a very special meaning in mind when he says that we should orient our lives towards seeking God. Because immediately after he says that God wants us to seek him, Paul says, Yet God is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. Right, so do you see what Paul is saying? Paul's saying that our purpose is to seek God, even though God is not very far, and in fact, in him we live and move and have our being. So we are we are immersed in God. Now if you think about this for just a moment, it's it's really strange. Why should you it's like telling a whale who's swimming in the ocean, hey whale, you've got to seek water. The whale's gonna be like, What? I'm I'm swimming in the water. What what am I supposed to be doing seeking water? Well that's basically what Paul is telling us. He says that in God, in him, we live and move and have our being, but still we have to seek God. So what does this mean to seek God? And I think um, one way to, to see what's going on here is to make an analogy with marriage. Okay, so, um, so I've been married about 12 and a half years now, and that, that's long enough for within my marriage uh, to have gone through a number of ups and downs, good times and, and also bad times. And what we found is that uh, when things are really tough, when the marriage is, is, is having trouble, right? uh, when the relationship is suffering, it's actually possible to be deeply alienated from the person you're married to. Even though we're living together and doing everything together, sleeping in the same bed, doing stuff with the kids together every single day, seeing each other every single day. Um, when, when you're in the middle of a, of a serious conflict or one or both of us has been seriously hurt, right, uh, and things haven't been resolved yet, then it's, it's possible to live together and to do all these things together, and yet still feel that there's just a huge canyon between us. This is possible in a marriage. And the truth is, it's not just us that go through this. It's actually extremely common in marriage for this to happen. Um, This emotional distance that can develop, it can last for for days, weeks, months. In in some serious cases, it can even last for years. Uh, The truth is that just because you you live with someone, it doesn't mean you're automatically going to be intimate with that person, right? uh, And psychologists have actually found that well over half of all people who experience loneliness actually are married, right? They become so disconnected from their spouse that they see them as disinterested and as preoccupied, and so they actually can feel lonely even while being married. And I think that's the situation between us and God. Right? As Paul points out, God is never far from us. We live and move and have our being in God. But because of our sin and rebellion, we've created an emotional and spiritual distance between us and God. Right? Uh, so even if we know that God exists, even if we know intellectually all the tr- theological truths about salvation, about how we, how, what God expects from us, um, it's still possible to feel detached and alienated from God, and we can feel utterly alone. Right. So we have to be reminded to seek God. Right. Um, well, how, how do you seek God? All right. so, um, well, I can tell you right away one way that's not going to work. This Athenian idolatry, the Dicetimonestris religion, that's not going to work. That's the quid pro quo type of religion. And, and it's very easy to see why this is not going to work with God when, when our situation with God is like this. Imagine that, that Karen and I are having a, a, a rough spot in our marriage and we're alienated from one another and things aren't, things aren't resolved yet, okay? And, so, and it turns out that I have a good friend who is um, going to have a bachelor party in Vegas and I really want to go, but, I, but Karen will have to take care of all the kids. What if I told Karen... Hey Karen, you know I know we've been going through this trouble, but you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna be real nice to you now. I'm gonna take you out to your nicest to all your favorite restaurants. I'm gonna cook you favorite food. I'm going to give you massages all the time. Uh, but what I want is to be able to go off to this weekend to this uh, to this bachelor party and you know have fun in Vegas. Right? And you take care of the kids during this time. So can we have this exchange? Right. How how do you, how well do you think that will go across? It it wouldn't work. It would not work. It wouldn't wouldn't get me anywhere. That's not going to restore my relationship with Karen, this kind of, like, quid pro quo type type thing. And the the reason is very obvious. When when I engage in this kind of reasoning with somebody else, it becomes immediately clear that I don't care about that person. What I care about is about what that person can do for me. Similarly, when the Athenians are approaching religiousness, their religiosity with this quid pro quo type arrangement with God, in which I do something for God thus so I can ask a favor of God, then that also shows that they don't care about God at all. They only care about what God can do for them. This isn't going to fix the emotional and spiritual distance, the separation that we have from God. This is not going to work. So what, what is going to work? How do you, well, think about how do you, how do you build a healthy marriage? Right. And uh, one way to look at this is to ask anyone who's ever been in love, what is it like to be in love? Right. Um, when you're in love, everything you do becomes renewed. Right. Um, every, even, even boring things like going to the grocery store becomes exciting and interesting because you're just wondering what she'll how she'll pick produce or something like that. Even that was interesting because you get to learn something new about the person you love. It's impossible to ever be down for very long because the moment you think about her, there's this huge smile that comes up on your face because you're thinking of her. And uh, the moment you think of her, all your worries and problems kind of just dissolve away. And every waking moment, you're just thinking about what you can do with her, things that uh, uh, ideas for it, ways to connect, uh, things to do, uh, all sorts of things, just just related to her, you're just nonstop. You're basically obsessed. Right? The main thing is when you're in love with someone, you can't stop thinking about them, and that's actually how the Bible describes what's it like when we are seeking God. Right? When we're seeking God, we just can't stop thinking about God. Psalm 105, verse four, tells us to seek God's presence continually, continually. Psalm 63 puts it very poetically. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. That's true worship. That's seeking God. So when, when Paul says the purpose of our lives is to seek God, um, he has in mind this all-consuming attitude, where all our thoughts, all our choices, all our feelings are directed towards God, and it's it's pretty extreme. Right? Uh, he, he goes. This is why, uh, in Romans, um, Paul tells us that none of us gets it right. And Romans three eleven says, "No one seeks for God; all have turned aside." Now, uh, sometimes in a marriage when a husband and wife have become alienated from one another, they will need a, a mediator, a counselor, somebody who can help uh, turn their hearts back to one another and mend the relationship. And that's what we have in, in Jesus. Uh, he has, he's a mediator, a counselor, someone who can mend our relationship with God. And that's how Paul ends his sermon in Acts 17. He points us towards Christ. Okay. Um, and I, I think I'm... I'm out of time, so I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop there. But uh, uh, but that's that's the that's the basic Christian message. That's what we're trying to do from day to day. Is this kind of seeking God and okay. let's pray. Heavenly God, we. Um